Much to my surprise, four of the top five episodes this year were actually by me or recorded with me and Ryan. I didn't expect that, but thank you. Here's an update and a recap of the year. Hello, my name's Karen O'Connor and you're listening to Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood, the podcast that looks at all aspects of women's lives from hormones and health to relationships, finance and social justice issues. You can connect with me on social media at at karino.mmm. If you enjoy this podcast or podcast in general, and you've been wondering whether you should start your own podcast, head on over to speakuppodcasting.com to find out just how easy and cheap it is to start podcasting. Now let's get right into it. It's an interesting experience sharing yourself and your thoughts. There's a much higher level of vulnerability and openness in doing that. And I find it personally quite challenging. For a start, who's interested in me and what's happening in my life? Who am I to think that other people are going to find the things that I'm doing and the things that I think, my opinions, of any interest at all? So I have to twist it round a bit. This isn't about me sharing my opinions or telling people what I think they should do or putting anyone down or anything like that. This is just me sharing about what's happening and what's going through my mind. This is all that is. Hopefully somebody can relate to it. Some of you can relate to it. Some of you may not. I know I've put out a few episodes this year that have caused quite a bit of a front to people which has been an interesting experience dealing with that fallout. So much has happened in my life in the last 12 months. There's an awful lot to share. I've had to change my views on a lot of things and I've had to come to new conclusions about things, about who I am, about what I want from my life, about what I expect in my life. So let's start at the very beginning. Here is the first episode this year where I started sharing about what's going on in my life. One of the things that people kept saying to me is, you need a purpose. What's your purpose in life? And I'd be like, oh, my purpose has always been my children, bringing my children up. Yes, but now your children are gone and you need another purpose. And so I spent a long time trying to figure out what my purpose in life was. What is it? Am I a teacher? No. Um, I don't know. Should I be teaching people how to become financially free? Should I be teaching them? Should I be a life coach? Should I like what? is my purpose in life and it became this it ended up where I was feeling completely inadequate because I couldn't find a purpose in life because what I realized as well is that what you're good at isn't necessarily what your purpose should be and notice there's going to be a lot of shoulds in this right I'm really good, for example, at organising things. I'm really good at cleaning the house. Do I want to make that my purpose in life? Absolutely not. I am quite happy keeping my own stuff in order. I am not at all happy keeping everybody else's stuff in order. It drives me insane. So that was one of the things I struggled with because all these people who say oh you need a purpose you really need a purpose in life you've got to find your purpose and then you'll be happy and looking back on it now it's all those things isn't it it's all that keeping us feeling inadequate and I'm not saying that they mean to do that but that is the end result if you don't have a purpose then you cannot possibly be happy now have a think about this how many people actually have a purpose 
I honestly think you are the exception if you have a purpose than the rule. Now, I don't feel like I've got a single purpose in life, a single goal that I want to achieve, a single thing that I'm going to do and make it my life's meaning, because that's the other thing mixed in with all this. There's a lot of meaning goes on in there. Your purpose is your meaning in life. And we're all searching for who we are. What do we mean? What's my life about? We're all searching for something. But there's a difference between having a purpose and being purposeful. So I don't have an overriding purpose, but I do everything purposefully because I want to get the washing up done. I want to get this podcast finished. I want to make sure whatever is all sorted out. I have lots of purposes and I don't even consider them goals. Like I have a bit of a thing about goals. I don't like goals. I personally find goals really restrictive and I've tried to do the whole what do you call it, five-year plan and bringing it down to a one-year plan, then a six-month plan and a three-month plan and then reverse engineer it so that you know each week what you've got to do to achieve your goals. I don't think I lasted a week before that kind of went out the window and I've tried it several times. It does not work for me. What I need personally, and this all ties in, the whole goals thing and the purpose thing is different flavors of the same thing. It is to me, right? This might not work for anybody else, but this is what works for me. I cannot do goals. I find them really restrictive. They leave me no freedom to do anything. For me, having a goal and reverse engineering all the steps, it's useful in one way because it gives me an idea, a great clarity about what needs to happen. And I enjoy having that clarity. I love reverse engineering for the fact that I know how I could do it. I don't think I've ever actually done it the way I've reverse engineered it because what works for me rather than have goals is have an outcome and an outcome in terms of an experience. So when you do a vision board, instead of putting on that vision board the things you want to have, you put on that vision board the experiences you want to have. So you get a picture and what emotion does that recall for you? What emotion does it elicit for you? Is it like that picture of a beach in Bali, a tropical beach? Does it elicit family? Is that what family is all about? Because those are the family holidays that you took when you were a child. Is it something that you want to do? You want to spend six months of the year sitting with your laptop on a beach in Bali or and going... Uh, scuba diving when you want, I was going to say synchronized swimming, go scuba diving when you want to, that kind of thing. It's the emotion that it elicits. And to me, when you set those kind of outcomes that are experience and emotion based, you leave the universe free to bring up whatever it'll bring up to give you those emotions. And what comes up in your life is so much more expansive. There's so much more possibility in that than going, this is what it's got to look like. Moving on from this, where I was looking at what I wanted to do with my life, I then started to share a little bit about my life as well, where I was at, what was happening, what my thoughts were, and it was interesting how many people had opinions about those things. Listen up, tell me what you think.
I've been with my husband, John, since we got married in 91. We've been together since 1988. And I was driving on holiday a few months ago end of November and I was listening to some of the tunes from the 80s when I first started university things like Susie and the Banshees and The Cure and Jesus and Mary Chain and Sisters of Mercy all of that all of those kind of bands and I really got present to what life was like for me at that time and how simple it was it was just so clear because the only person I had to think about or consider was myself. And one of the things we decided to do was when this last project settled and it was sold, then John would go off for a few weeks by himself and, I don't know, go hiking, do whatever he wants to do, stuff that I'm not interested in. And we'd have a few weeks apart just to give ourselves a little bit of a break and I'm getting present or I got present too. How difficult it is to explain that to anybody. I've lived with this guy for 33 years now. We've been together for 33 years. Apart from the occasional time, one or the other of us has taken a holiday by ourselves or I've gone over to visit my dad in the UK by myself or whatever. We've been together for 30 odd years and we expect that the relationship will be okay. What would it look like if instead of John going on holiday for a few weeks and spending a few weeks apart, what if we decided to spend a few months apart to just give ourselves time to remember who we are? Because when I think about that young woman that used to listen to Susie and the Banshees and go and watch The Cure and Bar House and all those kind of people, that's not the same person. And that's fine. But what's not fine is me now, I don't have the same possibilities. I don't perceive myself as having the same opportunities available for myself as I did then. I see restrictions as opposed to opportunities. I don't, everything that I think that'd be nice to do tends to come with a, yeah, but, yeah, but you can't do that because who's going to look after the cats? Yeah, but you can't do that because John might not like it. Yeah, but you can't do that because you've got to go and do this for one of the kids. There's always a yeah, but about somebody else. There's never a, I would like to do that it's a great idea and these are the reasons why. And you don't even need to give any reasons why. It's just like that would be so good for me and we don't do that. We might do it with the occasional day at a spa or going away for the weekend with some girlfriends or something like that. But we don't do things for ourselves for any length of time. I had a conversation with John and said, look, I actually think we both need six to eight months apart to remember who we are and what's important to us because this isn't just about me. He was feeling exactly the same as me. 
He might not have put it in the same words that I do, but his life was just as restricted as mine. And you get into bad habits as well. You get into really bad habits about the way you treat each other and who you are for each other and how you respond to something. What you found funny 30 years ago is suddenly really annoying because what you've forgotten is who that person was for you in the relationship originally, all you remember is the stuff that's happened in between, usually really negative stuff. And when you've got that pressure of stuff going wrong outside the relationship and the stress and everything else, it becomes overwhelming and it can only have a negative impact on the relationship. So what I'm going to suggest is I buy a place and I move into it and you go off and do what you need to do for six or eight months and then we'll get back together and decide what we're going to do to give us both time to remember who we are, what's important and who the other person is for us. We got to get present to who we married, why we got married in the first place, because we've forgotten. We got into so many bad habits. The great thing about going through all that is that it showed me where I won't say I needed to work on myself. It showed me what I wasn't very good at anymore. I used to be really good at this. I think we're all really good. You look at any five-year-old and it's all me, right? We grow out of that habit. And it's not a good, don't get me wrong, I am not endorsing any kind of narcissistic, selfish behavior here. What I'm saying is that I didn't take my own wants and needs into any equation. It was all about everybody else. What does my husband want? What do my kids want? Is this going to work for the family? As opposed to, is this the right thing for me to do? That was the difficult thing. And the last few months have been incredibly challenging. Last week, I spoke to you and shared about how my husband of 30-odd years, John, and myself have decided to spend a few months apart. It's actually been a really difficult experience to do that because for some people, the first question they ask is, yeah, but why? Why? You've been together 30-odd years. Why would you want to do this? And people, I find it really interesting that so many people want me to justify this decision that they can't accept that it's just a, a build-up of things. And, yes, it did look okay on the outside. And, yes, it is actually probably okay. And it's also not the situation that either John or I want. That's not how it is. But different people's reactions were really interesting. I had one person <laughs> ask me whether I was doing this because I, I was a bit out of my mind because of menopause and all the hormones. And when I said, no, that's not what's going on, they then asked me, is this because of all the personal development work you do? Because it makes you think really weirdly. No, it's not because of that either. It's because it's opened me to the possibility of that it could be different. It doesn't have to be like this. And I'm not who I want to be and John's not who he wants to be, probably. But it's also not to blame. And then I've had lectures. I can only call them lectures on the sanctity of marriage. This is not a decision that's been made easily. It's not something that I'm going into blithely. I am fully aware of the pain that I'm causing around me and I don't like that. 
But what I needed was to say to people, to have a group of people around me and say to them, this is what's happening. And for their first response to be, what do you need? How can I support you? That was absolutely crucial. And I was really fortunate in, I've got a few friends. I tend to know a lot of people and have very few close friends. I'm one of those people. My few friends have been absolutely crucial to me. And then interestingly enough, I also, my main source of support has actually been my family. I picked my brother and sister-in-law and about five of my cousins, and they're the ones that I tell everything to because their position is, (laughs) this is really bad, right? Their position is, we really like John, but Karen's family. So she has to come first. So all the anger, all the upset, the hurt, all the grief and the sadness, because we're talking 30 odd years of shared memories and four children. For heaven's sake, there's going to be a lot of that, all of that. What I was able to do was have those emotions, but not be those emotions. Does that make sense? That's a really difficult concept to get your head around. I am sad and I am upset and I am angry and I am afraid and all the other things. But there's also a part of me that carries on functioning quite independently and satisfactorily as well as that, like I've separated into two parts. One of them is all the emotions and thoughts and all the stuff that's going on there. And the other part of me is over here going, yeah, I get that totally. Yep. Okay. I've got stuff to do. One of the things that's occurred to me in all this is that taking this kind of action is perceived as unusual to the point of abnormal. And my response to it is perceived as bizarre, like you don't do this. And I'm not saying it's not been easy and it's not been plain sailing by any stretch of the imagination. I, John and I have not got through this without the odd few days where it's just been vile and we haven't been able to look at each other and I've just wanted to strangle him and I'm quite sure he's wanted to cut my head off and bury me somewhere. But we have got through it and it's the unusual thing that people can see is, or not that they can see, this is what I think is unusual, right? I think people in general We would rather, and I'm saying we because I fall into this category, we would rather put up with something that's uncomfortable and we don't like it and we know could be better. We would rather put up with that. We would rather sit on a chair that's got, what do you call it, a, a tack on it and have that tack sticking in our behinds than get off the chair and pull it out in case Getting off the chair and pulling it out is worse than sitting on the chair in pain. I don't know that I said that very well, but do you understand what I'm saying? We would rather be in pain in a known place than go somewhere we don't know and not know 
what's going to happen when we do that. We're so much more afraid of uncertainty than we are of doing something about something that we know isn't working for us or for the people around us. That's not how I like to do things. And it doesn't feel unusual to me because I do that. That's, it just, that just feels like that's how it's supposed to be. If you don't like it, do something about it. It's not hard, but I'm also not afraid of uncertainty. Uncertainty is where you grow. And I enjoy that. I enjoy growing. And I don't want to go into a lecture here. I'm not saying it's easy. And I'm not saying that every time I've decided to take a course of action because I didn't like whatever was going on, everything's turned out rosy because it definitely hasn't. Let me tell you, there's been more than a few instances where I've turned away from something and gone, oh, crap, that was a mistake, wasn't it? But that's also where you learn, and this is where I learn. I'm only talking about me. Everything I say is what goes through my head. This may not work for you, but I'm just simply trying to explain the way my mind works in all this. That's all I'm trying to do. So works for you, or if it helps you at all, great. If it doesn't, fantastic. Doesn't make any difference. I'm simply sharing what happens. So what is there to take out of this? For me, this has all been about not being willing to accept okay. Good enough is never good enough. Or it'll do. No, it won't. If you know that there's a possibility of something being way better than it could be, why would you not go out and get it? So there were two episodes there that I put out back to back. And the kickback and the judgment that I got from those two episodes was unbelievable. Totally unexpected. I was really shocked about the opinions people had. And it inspired me to have a conversation with my second son, Ryan. Now, Ryan has studied philosophy and psychology, and he's now an actor and a playwright. So the human condition and humanness are some things that he really enjoys looking at. So when I'm stuck with some kind of problem that I can't quite put my finger on, or I know it doesn't feel right, but I can't identify it, I'll have a conversation with Ryan because he can usually pinpoint what I can't necessarily see for myself. In this conversation, I spoke to him about what was bothering me about certain kinds of behaviors from men and how it landed for me as really immature. And the big question for me was, why would you want to marry somebody that you had to parent because they were so immature? Let's listen to this one, see what you think. It was in the latest Julia Gillard book. Somebody in there says that, According to neurological research, there is no difference between the male brain and the female brain. The only difference in any brain is pregnant or not pregnant. And the way men and women think differently is entirely caused by the way they've been brought up and what they've been trained in. Absolutely. That's what we were taught when, when I was doing neuroscience is that structurally speaking, there's, there's absolutely no difference between the male brain and the female brain. There are chemical changes according to various physiological differences, pregnancy being the most drastic, which is understandable considering you're acting as a aircraft carrier for human beings, but there's, there's really no kind of s structural difference there. 
there's no reason that people act differently aside from hormones. And I find it really telling that giving each, if you gave a man more testosterone, it doesn't make him more manly, even in the physical sense. If you gave a woman more estrogen, it doesn't make her more feminine, even in the physical sense. Like it's, I find that really interesting. And a lot of these things really are just trained into people. And it's so lazy. Most of these sexist things, uh, or the, like the sex difference kind of things. Like I was reading a whole article on the women or girls mature more quickly than boys do. Read a whole article on it because there are a couple of points, a couple of studies that show that's generally speaking the trend, but there's very little physiological reason for that. And one of the rising assumptions is that we just train that. We just train that into kids because we say, oh, girls, you're supposed to be more mature. I expected you to be more mature. You should be more mature and you'll get your act together. Whereas boys are like, they won't mature until they're 25 at a minimum. Kids under about four, just there's really no difference, basically. Apart from they've got a couple of different organs. They're just, there's just, gender is just a concept. It doesn't apply to them. There's no difference in their activities, in their levels of energy or their responses to different stimuli. There is a lot of different response to the way that people approach them, but that's something else. But it's also the same after about 60. Once menopause finishes in, in women, men and women become practically identical again in every metric. It's ridiculous. There's no if except in life expectancy, which is generally to do with whether or not boys will be boys or won't be boys. <laughs> I don't understand why you'd want to parent your partner. I'm really sorry. I would not want another child in a relationship. And a lot of women have got that. And a lot of women expect that. I don't get it. I have heard the same thing and I find it quite sad. <laughs> I find it very sad as an expectation that people have. And, and that's the only reason that it continues because it perpetuates itself. This is only doable because the, that's the expectation. And it's, there, there, there are problems in both genders, men listening, and it's not universal. I'm sure that you, you do the dishes. And uh, I'm sure you do your own laundry and that you contribute an equal amount to maintaining your living situation. And you don't necessarily walk up to strangers and ask for them for money just right off the bat. But just be better. <laughs> Australian men, be better. And I think a lot of it is to do with how shallow male friendships are. Really? Why? When you look at it really closely, Again, this is a whole, this is a whole discussion, but like in my experience, like the function of a friendship, a, a real kind of close friendship is that you form a group of people that monitors its own behavior, right? And I say that because I've been reading a bunch of studies about small children in, in generally in kindergarten age. And one of the trends that you get is that if you've got a bunch of small children and there is a teacher nearby that monitors them and swoops in when one of them says, oh, that miss, or I assume miss, because it's a female dominated industry. But if you know, one of the kids comes up and says, this person was very mean to me and they, they pushed me into the sand and now I've got a sore knee. 
Uh, and then the teacher comes in and dispenses judgment. Generally, the function of that group is more unbalanced than it would be if someone if they didn't have an adult nearby. Groups of children without adult supervision form their own method of resolving problems. And there's less difficulty with bullying and things because uh, a child's response to a bully is very simple. You ostracize them. <laughs> you just exile them. You just buy, <laughs> which is on the surface to us adults, it's a very kind of surface level, short term, doesn't resolve the issue kind of response. But in, when you think about it, if you're in a group of kids and their response to someone who is a bully uh, or is problematic in any way is ostracizing them, then I think kids learn very quickly not to do that. And there are exceptions. There are uh, reasons that some kids are, are ostracized that they, they can't help. That doesn't necessarily affect all kids the same way. Although it is interesting to note that in the playground, when you've got self-monitored groups of uh, children, individuals with, say, ADHD become leaders of groups rather than ostracized outcasts, which I found very interesting. Yeah, overwhelmingly, they become uh, risk takers and leaders of groups because they've done things before. They've pushed boundaries and they know where is safe uh, because they've already gone out and pushed everything. They're the ones to, to give drive and direction to. Small. Anyway, it's not important at this point, but it's an, an interesting conversation for another day. But adult men have a group of friends who are almost exclusively monitored and supported by an exterior group. They don't have to monitor and support themselves. They don't, they're not required to do that. So when you've got a group of men who have spouses that do everything for them, and their main role at home is to drink beer, watch football and, and yell at their friends, that's, it's got the same problem. Because any justice administered, any problem that arises is solved outside of that social group. And so they lose a lot of ability to solve problems on their own, particularly emotional problems, uh, because their method of, if one of them has an argument with another one, they'll either fight about it, like physically, or they'll go away, not talk to each other for a while and then come back again. And they can do that because they've got other people in their lives who do everything for them and look after their emotional needs. As you can imagine, a lot of men reacted fairly badly to that episode and behaved in exactly the kind of way that we were talking about in that episode. Really interesting. For me, those things that happened at that time were a pivotal moment. They were the moment when I decided to stop shutting up and putting up with things and to actually call people out on their behavior. And it was a very challenging time for me because I realized a lot of things. For example, one of my neighbors reacted very badly to the point where he put a comment up on social media and he said, I've always enjoyed listening to some of your episodes, but I will not listen to them as if this is the kind of drivel you're going to post. He said a couple of other really quite nasty things. And I called him out for his behavior. And the thing is, what I realized as well, is that while he may or may not know how he's behaving, my experience has been that other men will tell me to just ignore it. It's just him 
doing what he does. He's just an idiot. Don't bother. It's not worth your time doing it, arguing with him. And that's okay, except it doesn't come from a woman's perspective. Ignoring it does not cover the woman's experience of it. Ignoring it is okay for a bloke because he's talking to you as another man. But when that kind of person is talking to a woman, they're talking down to a different level. And that needs addressing. And that was one of the things I realized how often I've been in social situations where I've tolerated behavior to not rock the boat, to not cause a problem in somebody else's house, to just leave it alone. It's not worth making any fuss over it. And that's how my life became smaller and I became smaller and why I felt so out of integrity and so off track because I completely was. That behavior is not appropriate. I do not want that kind of behavior in my life. And what was one of the really interesting things was that, as somebody pointed out, all of the people who took offense, almost probably I'd say in excess of 95% of the people who took offense at it and did these usually very long-winded quotes or comments to me on social media were middle-aged, bald, overweight, white men funny that at around the same time the things were coming at me thick and fast another male neighbor also tried to bully me into something he did something that was just it was so thoughtless and it wasn't just thoughtless he did it knowing believing that there would not be any repercussions to it what could I do I couldn't do anything. What happened was we had our house on the market. Now, over here, when you put your house on the market, when it goes on the market, you have to sell it in the same condition that it was in when it went on the market and certainly when the person looked at it. Our boundary fence at the back was this 30-something-year-old hedge, massive, overgrown, provided complete privacy to the back of the house. My neighbor saw fit to remove that boundary fence without asking me and replace it with a row of saplings about four meters apart. Now my house is an equestrian, that, that property is an equestrian property, has horses on it. So now there was no fence, nor was there any privacy to the back garden. You could walk into it from the road across the next door neighbor's property. And he thought that was okay. And his kind of bullying tactic the way he deals with somebody that is annoyed with him, he just talks over them and he stands over you because he's a very tall bloke. He stands over you and he looks down at you and he doesn't stop talking until you shut up. And I realized the same as the other guy, slightly different way, but that guy as well, he also does the same thing. He stands very close to people and he towers over them and tries to intimidate you into submission. So I wasn't having a bar of either of these two and neither one of them liked it. And I don't think either one of them is ever going to be friends with me on Facebook again. Does his face look bothered? Not at all. This has been a year of exponential growth for me. I could not even have imagined 12 months ago that I would be where I am today. What's happened this year wasn't on my radar screen at all. I could not have imagined it, but I'm somewhere more than I could have even imagined 12 months ago. I wasn't even aware of how far out of integrity and how far away from my own power I was back then. I didn't even know that. 
I am not the person I was 12 months ago. I like myself a lot more now for a start. As I was saying, one of the things that's really shocked me is the realisation of how many things I tolerated. And I tolerated them because they built up slowly. It's like that analogy of putting a frog into cold water and then putting the pan on the fire. And the frog doesn't realise how hot the water is until it's already cooked. That, to me, is what my life was like 12 months ago. With all of the things that I'd been tolerating, the cold water had just become hotter and hotter, and I didn't realise how much discomfort and danger I was in until it was almost too late. It was too late for our relationship, certainly for a start. On a personal level, relationship level, where things are at now with my husband, John, is we still haven't got back together for that conversation that I spoke about in the earlier episode that we were going to have six to eight months down the track. We've just decided that there's still too many things in the way. We're still not healed enough. We're not going to be able to have that conversation with any level of objectivity. And that if we even tried to have that conversation now at this stage, we'd just be bringing all of those years of resentment and anger and upset and everything else to the table with us. So we've applied for a divorce and that should go through within the next couple of weeks because it's a joint divorce. We've both agreed to it. And then we'll see what happens in the future. We are going to become grandparents this year. Very exciting. So we got to work it out. But we both felt that if we ended things completely, it gives us the space to have a fresh start because we got married for a reason. We used to get on really well and we want to get back to that. And unless we draw a line under everything, we're not giving ourselves the full opportunity to get back to that. And what's interesting is that I consider myself to be pretty aware, both of myself and of other people. When I look back at my life 12 months ago and my marriage and everything, I didn't realize what was happening. I didn't realize how uncomfortable I was. There was never an event where I could go, that's it, done, I'm over. It was like tiny little things that when you take them individually, they never seem enough to justify taking any action. But the problem is that's like that fire under the frog that's in the pan of water. Little by little, when you do little by little, you don't notice it. But as a build-up, it's huge. And I found, as I shared in one of those episodes, that people have really big judgments when you make a decision because people are seeing everything out of context as opposed to seeing it as a whole. But it made me wonder just how many other women feel this way and can't put their fingers on why and don't know what to do about it. And then the Barbie movie came out, which sounds a bit bizarre, but it actually nailed everything that I was feeling. And I remember sitting in the movie theater just going, oh, my God, that's it. And the speech where they talk about the cognitive dissonance of being a woman in the patriarchy, the expectations that are placed on women. You've got to be thin, but you can't be thin. You've got to be healthy and you've got to look good, but you can't look too good in case you threaten other women and become a threat. All of these things that they said in that speech 
was just exactly how I was feeling and I couldn't put my finger on it. Here was I, somebody who'd worked in the construction industry in the 80s. I used to run building sites back in the 80s. I considered myself to be well beyond any sexism, any of the stereotypes. It just didn't matter. It didn't make a difference in my life. But when I look at my life, that's exactly where I was. I was heavily stuck in, (laughs) I hate to say this, in the patriarchy, in a role where I was unvalued, completely unvalued, where I didn't matter, where I couldn't have an opinion. And there were all these reasons my opinion didn't count and I didn't count because I hadn't been in the workforce. I hadn't earned any money in a long time. I hadn't been outside of the home for a while, so I didn't really know anything. Those are things that may never have been spoken, but they were there. They were the undercurrent that was there, and that's why I was so unhappy. And now that I'm out of that situation and I no longer have that kind of thing in my life, my life is so different, I cannot tell you. So 2024... It's going to be an interesting year. Hopefully, there won't be as many drastic growth opportunities, shall we say. But I have things planned for this year because now I'm in a position where what I'll accept and what I'll tolerate and what is okay and what isn't, I am much clearer about than I was 12 months ago. And I'm going to be sharing that a lot more as well because I've quite got up my about a few things. Things are not good in some aspects of society. And I did promise myself that I wouldn't lecture everybody, but there you go. I do have a passion about that. So I wish you all the best for 2024. And I want to thank you for being a part of this community and for listening to this podcast. I really appreciate it. I hope that you have the kind of growth opportunities that I've had over the past year or so and grab them with both hands because even though they do not look inviting and they look really scary, what's on the other side is unimaginable. So just if an opportunity comes along and you're not sure about it, do it anyway because you can't imagine what the outcome might be. All the very best for 2024. Thanks so much for being a part of my journey. I love you all. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget, if you've been thinking how great it would be to have your own podcast so that you can interview guests and speak to people about the topics that you're interested in personally, head on over to speakuppodcasting.com to find out just how easy and cheap it is for you to start podcasting. There's a download on how to start a podcast for free waiting there for you. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.